Hello, everybody. I'm Tom Dorsey, and I'm with two very unique people today. Ralph Lehman, who wrote the book, The Elusive Trade, and Joseph Rosello, who is with me, who's been a friend of mine for 35 years, been in this business 50 years. And we're going to talk about the how and why the exchange-traded fund ended up coming to market. It's the history of the exchange-traded fund. Nobody's ever told this story. And this goes back to the very first one. And uh, it does my heart some good. You know, we've, I've talked about this so many times, so many places around the world. It's now in a book, The Elusive Trade. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. So, Ralph, thank you very much for coming. Joseph, thank you very much for coming. And let's get into it. Yes. Ralph, tell me about how you began with the book and what made you want to begin writing this book and tell the ETF story that no one's ever told before. Gladly. And it started with me going to an ETF conference because I knew absolutely nothing about ETFs. I was involved in the investment industry, and I thought this is something I needed to know for my clients, and had gone for several years. And what ended up happening over a couple of years is the conference became less important in the after hours and meeting with the folks who had been involved in the industry um, for 10 or 10 years or more became more and more of an appeal, I started hearing these incredibly interesting stories. And having a love for financial history and a love for history as a, a whole, when I got back after one conference, I thought, I'm going to get a book and read on this because, again, truly amazing people, exceptional stories. How did this all come about? I couldn't find one. I could find bits and pieces in a couple of books, but no one had it. And... I'd had an interest in thinking of writing a book at some point in time, but never really had a subject. I felt like with this, I'd found a worthwhile subject to pour myself into. And I had some changes in circumstances that allowed me to devote some time to writing the book. And so with that, I just started scanning the internet because I really didn't know that many people in the industry. And fortunately for me, one of the people I'd met at the conference was a lady by the name of Arlene Reyes who Joseph knows, and Arlene couldn't really tell me the story, but she had a great black book of contacts. And she gave me several contacts, key people who ended up helping me throughout the story. And perhaps the most key person was Joseph Rosello. And so I, I may have started with an email. I don't even know if I did that. I picked up the phone. I gave Joseph a phone call, and we hit it off from the get-go. Uh, for me, it was like drinking out of a fire hose. Yeah. Because Joseph is a wealth of knowledge. But Joseph was involved in this at the very get-go. And I realized my extent of my knowledge was about the depth of a puddle when it came to this story. In some ways, that's not necessarily a bad thing. When you don't know something about a subject, you're more willing to ask questions. Joseph was more than willing to answer the questions. And so he devoted a lot of time. I don't know how many times we talked together on the phone, um, but he walked me through the story. When I hit things I didn't understand, he was willing to walk back and, and explain it to me. And so uh, this is how I started off writing the book. And fortunately for me, I think God directed me to several people who not only knew the story, but then had contacts who led to additional contacts. So that's how the the idea of the book germinated. Why the name The Elusive Trade? 
Sure, because as I was talking with people like Joseph, like Gary Eisenreich, um, Bob Toll would be another person. And as I was doing my reading in market history, the markets hit a point to where they went from trading just individual stocks. And he can tell the story much better than I can. But for years, you went out and you bought blue chip stocks. And that was fun. And that's, you know, you you might go into a trust account, million dollar trust account, and might hold four or five stocks paying dividends. But over time, we developed this concept of developing a portfolio of stocks. You know, Markowitz and his writing. And when people looked at trading portfolios, the whole notion of how do you trade an entire portfolio was something that they started grappling with. And then Black Monday hit, and that really brought it to a head. So thus in the elusive trade. This was something that people were looking to do, looking to do on the exchange. And it wasn't elusive because people couldn't figure out, hey, how to put this together. It was elusive because they were tiptoeing through a minefield of different groups who didn't want their turf encroached on in several different ways. And that appeared and reared its ugly head in several different places, of which Joseph is quite familiar. Well, why don't you weigh in, Joseph? You and I go back 35 years. Um, I remember being head of option strategy at Wheat First Securities, which is a very large regional firm. When you came out with the first options on indexes, that was such a major revelation to me was, oh my God, here's the first time we can actually trade an index instead of a stock. So that was like the shot over the bow. You were the ones that put together the team that brought the cash index participation unit. Tell me about that. Yeah, so Tom, I went to work for the Philadelphia Stock Exchange in 84, 85, I think I started. And um, uh, I've been blessed in my life um, to have the knack of being in the right place at the right time. Um, one of the first things that Nick Giordano, who was the CEO of the Philadelphia Stock Exchange back then when he hired me, he had this concept and this idea um, I can only assume that they had been talking about it for a while, that um, wouldn't it be great to take an index like the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average and um, make it look and feel like a stock? And um, in our backyard was Vanguard uh, in, in, in Malvern, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, I have to just, you know, uh, shout out for a shout out for Jack Bogle, who really is, is the father of indexes. He created the S&P 500 index in 1975. And interestingly enough, 10 years later, when we started to work on the concept that Nick had explained to me, um, the S&P 500 was trading somewhere around, it had a value of 250 or $260. Um, and they had about $300 million in assets. Actually, ultimately, when we launched in the middle of 1987, um, uh, you know, it, it had somewhere in north, north of a billion dollars. So when Nick gave me this project today, I mean, it's interesting because we, we had a vision that this would be a successful vehicle, investment vehicle. But I don't, there's no one that can envision the kind of, um, incredible growth that 
the ETF um, uh, model would create. Um, really, if you think about it, it's an industry with inside an industry, the ETF, the ETF business. Um, there's over $7 trillion in indexes now. ETFs, you know, can apply to almost any kind of financial instrument, whether it be an individual stock, whether it be a fixed income instrument, a commodity, it crosses geography. ETFs are now all over the world, even in emerging market countries. So it's just astonishing. I like to say that it's hard to believe that um, the moment that I started working on this with the team that Nick allowed me to assemble, and I'll talk about the team in a little bit. Um, it, it, it's you know I like to say that it's probably or arguably the most effective investment vehicle to come to market in the modern era, and 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 for me to be part of you know it's it's followed me everywhere everywhere I went in my career, um, and. Um, and so I have a special place in my heart for it. As you know, Tom, I met you back in 1985. And actually, you became a member of my team because right. you had great insight because you worked very, you know, you, you worked very closely with financial advisors. Mm -hmm. Back then, we called them stockbrokers. Right. So you became a part of my team. As a matter of fact, after we created the product, you traveled all over the world with me to promote it. Um, so uh, there's, there's so much credit it needs to be given to so many people. And I think Ralph does a great job of that in his book through the years. I just was in the right place at the right time. Nick threw this project on my lap. It was one of the first things I started working, working on at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. And, and he allowed me to put a great team of people together because that's what it takes. It takes a team. No one person can do this. Um, I'm not sure where Nick came up with the idea. So we took the S&P 500. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average, S&P at 250 divided by 10 became a $25 stock. The Dow Jones, I think, was somewhere around 1,500 at the time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, turn that in, you know, the divisor of a 100 became a $15 stock, right? And the concept was a great concept because, um, and, and it, by the way, it wasn't successful out of, out, of, out of the gate. It took us two and a half years to bring it to market. And then we could, you know, we, we can we can go on from there. Well, Ralph, tell me a little bit about the, the research that you did and the people that were involved in, in bringing it. And... and the people were the research. So when I was trying to fill out the edges of the book, I was going to the newspapers and magazines and things and trying to, to gather information. But the vast majority of it came from being able to talk to people. And unfortunately... Even though some time has elapsed, I was able to, to interview most everyone I would have liked. There were three or four notable people that stood out that I did not get to talk to. I was able to talk with Jack Bogle. Jack cracked me up because he said, well, that was 30 years ago. I don't really remember it that well. And he was never a big fan of ETFs, as many people are well, right. well aware. But then at that point, he started throwing out some details of his meeting with Nate Most, with the spider. And that was something that came after the SIPs product, but Jack at his age was still able to do that. So well, when you say SIPs product, that's the cash index participation unit that the Philly product. Correct. 
the Philadelphia. And it actually Exchange. traded on the Philadelphia Exchange. And, yeah, yes. and I think the route throws out, you know, Nate Post, I used to talk to him all the time, yeah. a great guy. And he worked with Steve Bloom, two very smart people. And we always like to tease them because when we filed the SIP product, um, they saw that it had a great utility. <laughs> so they copied our filing right down to the typo. <laughs> and of course, it was an arduous path. We finally got SIPs up and running in 1987 and listed it. Um, you know, and tra- we're able to list it and trade it um, on the Philadelphia Stock Exchange. And, and uh, uh, it was met by a famous lawsuit. Um, the futures exchanges, for some reason or another, were threatened by this product. Um, it was never meant to replace futures. It really was the mutual fund aspect of a trading vehicle that would be listed on an exchange. Because, you know, mutual funds are priced once a day. This was continuous pricing. And, you know, you can margin it. You could do lots of different things with it. The mo- you know, and, and, and so um, we were met by a lawsuit. Well, when I say we were met, the SEC was met by a lawsuit for approving the product. Mm-hmm. And it's a famous decision. It's called the Easterbrook decision. You can find it online. And what Judge e- that was the, I think it's the, I think it's the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. Tenth. No, no, it's not the Tenth. No? No, it's not the Tenth. I think it's the Seventh. Um, um, and and uh, right in the backyard of the, of the futures yes. exchanges. Right. Right. And uh, we figured that rather than protesting that, um, let's let it be heard there. And, in, in, you know, in, in, in 1988 or 89, the decision came out, or 88, I guess it was. And what Judge Easterbrook found is, is that while SIPs had every element of a security, uh, 99% of security did have some elements of the future, and therefore it couldn't trade on a securities and exchange, and then the rest is history. And, you know, unfortunately for us, um, uh, we, we, we stayed with the concept, and we challenged, you know, we, we, we challenged it. And what would happen is the Toronto Stock Exchange, in the middle of all of this, really loved what we were doing, and they come and they spend a few days with us in Philadelphia, and um, what they did is they went back home because back then your exchanges were not competing across borders, right? So they went back to Canada and they created TIPS, as you well know, Tom. And, uh, uh, you know, TIPS was on, on their index, mm-hmm. right? And what they did is they put the physical stocks Yes, right. Stock. Therein lies the difference. Yeah. And therein lies the difference. And yours and, was backed by futures. No, and ours, yeah, ours was a theoretical basket, theoretical basket that could be hedged with futures for sure, because you had the S and P five hundred future. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really took our concept and brought it to fruition, right? And created tips. And then, of course, Nate Mose and Steve Bloom took that, and I'll never forget it. It was it was um, early 90s. I was in Hong Kong um, uh, doing a presentation on our currency options. Um, And I get a phone call uh, from someone who says to me, Amex is going to bring the S&P Spiders product, which is going to be back. But, you know, it's going to have a physical basket of stocks in place. And they talked about the creation redemption process and all this sort of stuff, which was, you know, all new stuff. And, and, and you know, just the evolution of any, any great idea. And they deserve credit for it. And then they, they listed the product on the Amex. And it was, it was, it was sort of, you know, uh, my heart 
sank a little bit because we had a lot invested in it. And back then, Tom, you remember the first to market, it was tough to overthrow yeah. them. But they struggled with that product for the first couple of years. The interesting thing back then was the exchange never thought of the asset management opportunity. What they wanted was volume. We were looking for volume. So they they put a deal together with State Street. State Street would manage the trust of the assets that would go into spiders. And then queues came. And then it wasn't until really the late 90s, early 2000s that iShares, uh, Barclays, um, became the issuer of their set of ETFs. And they saw the utility in the fact that they can gather assets to manage in the trust. And, uh, and here it is, 34, 35 years later, trillions of dollars in these products, supposedly want to overtake um, mutual funds in terms of cash well, flows in. Absolutely will. Yeah, in 2021 or 2022, right. uh, it's far more efficient than a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about this, I mean, the, 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 the great thing about this story is every mutual fund was against ETFs. That's right. They're all in the business now, Tom. Well, Ralph, l- l- let's you weigh in on the book. What did you find the most interesting part of, about writing the book and learning about the exchange traded fund? And He's touched on it that it was a process. It, today, it's truncated to people look at the spider and hear, you know, it's as if you opened up a can and here was an ETF. It was a process that was going on that historically, uh, it was developed on exchanges primarily. You had Leyland, um, O'Brien and Rubenstein, L.O.R., who had done the portfolio insurance, who were a major player with this and did a lot of groundbreaking work. But it was the exchanges that were doing all of this innovation. So not only just this one product, but Joseph and his team, Nate Most and his team at the Amex, there was so much going on at the exchanges. The financial markets were going through an amount of change that they really hadn't in their history up to that. And it was against the backdrop of companies were merging. And so therefore, since everything was company-based up until the 80s, you had fewer companies that you were seeing trade on your exchange. You were forced to go and, and innovate and bring new products. And so against this backdrop of exchanges closing down, people losing their jobs, there was a need to come up with new products. And this was just one of the many new products, but it was by far the most successful and very versatile product. It's amazing how versatile the ETF is. And then something else that has been touched on is just how many people are involved. Because when I think about a new security, at least I did before writing the book, you think about some of the big financial firms and they get some, some brainiacs who are mapping things out. This was nothing like it because it was very much operationally based. The ETF, the beauty of the ETF is how it trades on the exchange and how you can put any type of product in it. Uh, I do a presentation and I liken it to modern shipping because the old image is shipping. You think about on the waterfront, Marlon Brando, Longshoreman, and how they're, they're loading the boat and how time intensive that was. You look at modern shipping, what do you have? You have these containers. Yeah. Everything's standardized. You fill up the containers, and when the port, or when the ship comes to port, 
it spends very little time there. Everything is loaded up. You can think of that as the transaction. Transaction costs have come down. They're much more efficient. And the ship goes out to harbor. And it's interesting to see when the container ship comes in, they may lift one container, set it on a truck that's in gear. He's gone. Exactly. And that was just one container. It's not like they're taking all the containers off and sending them on the dock. There may be a truck there. I've, I've watched that on TV. That's so interesting. This one truck might be going to California. Yeah, and I think I just want to... Uh, Ralph mentions a couple, LOR, Leland O'Brien, Rubenstein, you remember them, portfolio insurance. Mm-hmm. I remember I used to present um, our SIP product and they would be there as well. And, and they, were, they were the brainiacs and the academicians. And the interesting thing about that product, portfolio insurance, it worked until it was, it, it worked until it had to work yeah. in 1987 and it didn't until, work. Yeah, it didn't really it work. Yeah. And I, I remember that uh, they're really, really good guys and really smart guys. But, but um, my, you know, my feeling about it, it's interesting because, Tom, years later, I was hired by Vanguard. And um, I remember meeting with Gus Sauter in the mid-90s, you know, after spiders had come. And clearly, ETFs were now on the map and people were paying attention to them, even though that they were not, not knocking the cover off the ball. But, you know, spiders was, you know, was doing decent volume and gathering decent assets. And um, I called on Gus because, as you know, Tom, we had a lot of indices that we traded, gold and silver, semiconductors. Right. Um, utilities. Oh yeah. No, yeah. Options on them. And nobody ever thought about sectors then. Right. Exactly. I mean, for me running an option department, that was like a major victory. Yeah. I remember. And that's how you and I got connected because you loved some of the things we were doing. And I, Gus was nice enough to meet with us. And, um, and he said to me, Joseph, he said, you know, we're not going to do anything like that at Vanguard. Um, and as I told you, you know, all the mutual funds back in the 80s, late 80s, were against the whole concept sure. of ETFs because they saw it as a threat, okay, to their mutual fund business. And they saw the importance of the creation redemption process and the tax efficiencies that it brought. Tax efficiency, yeah. And, 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 and there are still people out there challenging the whole concept of creation redemption. Right, which brings the cat, you know, which brings the, the the you know the exchange of the basket in kind that uh, gives you know many many ETFs don't have tax distributions or have very minimal tax distributions, so so it's a big advantage. So Gus said no. I went to work for them in 1998. I hadn't been there two months. Gus called me in his office. He says you're one of four people in the firm that knows we're going to get into the ETF business, and there again, Tom, um, you know. I'm put in the, I'm put in the, given the opportunity to help them bring ETFs to market. Now, unbeknownst to us, back then, Barclays, we had no idea that they were thinking about doing the same thing. And Vanguard had a big advantage because we had 10 million clients back then. So we had distribution to clients. BlackRock, no other now BlackRock, Barclays, iShares, they didn't have any distribution, right? Um, they were just managers. So, um, we had an advantage, but it was we had no idea that they were talking to S&P, and S&P gave them an exclusive contract. Vanguard already had a contract that dated back to when Jack Bogle created the S&P 500 in 1975. So I, I you know, I urged them to call. We, we need to talk to S&P, and, and I couldn't get anywhere with that. And then ultimately, S&P finds out that we want to bring an ETF. They call Vanguard, and they say, 
why didn't you call us? We just gave an exclusive contract to Barclays. And, and, and Gus said, well, we already have a contract. One thing led to another. There was a lawsuit. Vanguard lost twice. And they couldn't, they couldn't list um, um, an S&P 500 ETF. They had to go to MSCI, okay, and restructure what they were going to do, which really was a setback. Now, I hate to say that Vanguard lost the first half, right, to, to, to iShares, but they're winning the second half. It's a great organization. I mean, they were able to recover. Um, and the interesting thing about that story, Tom, some years later, many years later, I wound up being a consultant <laughs> for iShares. And I tell the story to one of their principals and he starts laughing and I'm saying, what are you laughing at? He said, had we had any idea at that time that Vanguard was thinking about bringing an ETF, I would have never got the hundred million dollars to fund iShares. So it's so, and it's funny how like, it just follows me, you know? So, and today I'm involved in an asset management firm, a registered investment advisor, and ETFs are a principal asset allocation tool for us. So can I add something? Oh, please do, because it's all about you and the book and Joseph. To give credit where credit is due. So when Vanguard came out with their ETFs, they were called Vipers. That's right. I remember that snake. And it was the index (laughs) participation equity redemption. So even with their name, they were giving homage to your product off the Philadelphia Exchange. Well, the interesting thing that I was there, when we picked a name, I was there. So Gus said, we, we got to think of some sort of an animal or insect <laughs> because of spiders. <laughs> so we came up with vipers. <laughs> and well, the Jews story. But, but, <laughs> but they, not only did they come up with, a, you know, an ins- viper, you know, Vipers, like a snake, right? Yeah. A reptile, but they—they they, the acronym actually worked. Worked, and but today they—they—they they, they disaway. They, right. they did away with that. And Bob Toll, uh, Morgan Stanley did the same thing when they came out with their international array of funds. They called it Webs, World Equity Benchmarks. That's right. So you had Spider and you had Webs. You know, I had forgotten those things, and I've been involved with this from the beginning with you, and. Boy, that this really brings back old memories. That's what you've got in your book. There is all this information. Right. Can I make two other? Points? Yeah, please. Things that make all have. the points that you want to make. Because the ETF to me is one of these rare instances where, when you're in the financial industry, there's a pressure to produce. There's a pressure to make money. I get that. The ETF is one of those rare times where there really was an emphasis on doing what was best for investors. And so you saw that, that when people were looking to bring the product, Joseph, you wanted some trading volume on your floor. Yes. Nate wanted the exact same thing. But when you look at how the ETF is built, its design, and the uses, it did a great job, not only in the ETF world, but driving down uh, the cost, transaction costs, because that's put pressure on the mutual fund industry. That's one of the reasons where even for people who only use mutual funds and would never touch an ETF, you're paying lower transaction fees right. because of this. So the ETF put investors first in a lot of ways. It gave them an instrument where they could access markets. They could access sectors of markets that they couldn't before. They could do it in a low transaction way. 
there can be issues with it. Uh, Nate Most, who was at the Amex, wrote an interesting letter to the SEC. And he wrote this after he'd stepped away from the Amex. He ended up going and being an advisor to, uh, to Barclays. Yes, he um, But he wrote a letter saying that they're toying with the idea of an actively managed ETF. Now we accept them. His call was SEC, give it a different name. If you give it a different name from an ETF, then investors will know that they're getting a passive product when they buy an ETF. So you see this theme woven throughout that there was a lot of putting investors first, thinking what's really good for the investors, not what's going to line up, uh, what's going to line the pockets of some of these firms. And I think a big reason of that was because it was exchange driven. They wanted good products. They wanted good products that were trade. And what was going to appeal to people? Something like this. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a great point that Ralph raises because it was about the exchanges that were the intellectual capital behind product development. It's kind of reversed now, right? I mean, it's now the issuers it's that, that are responsible you know, for bringing these products and they need the exchanges to do it. But you and I have talked a lot about this. And in my hours of conversations with Ralph as he was writing the book, which I'm really grateful to him for, he put a little time and effort, a lot of time and effort in um, memorializing a lot of the history of ETFs. But ETFs are part of what happens in our industry time, at least in all the years that I've been in it, this creative destruction, right? It's, it's, it's taking the old and making it better. And Ralph mentioned earlier that everybody wants to protect their turf. So there's a lot of pushback when people hear new ideas, right? And what's that going to mean to me, i.e. the lawsuit from the Merck, the law, you know, the, the mutual funds filing mm-hmm. amicus to the lawsuit. Um, and, and, and today, this destruct, you know, there's a lot of disruption in the industry. But we could point to you. We can point to, you know, bringing options on stocks in the '70s was revolutionary, yeah. right? Um, May Day, you know, fixed commissions to negotiated commissions. The advent of the discount broker—they'll never make it, right? They changed the world, right? And and, and ETFs, monumental changes. You know, you know, part of the disruption. And now technology has become the great disruptor in our industry. And, 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 and it's like the big giants, if they can't change, they fall. So you always have to be conscious of where the puck is going, right? Who would have ever thought, actually, I, I, you know, we're now at zero transaction fees, mm-hmm. buying stocks and ETFs. That all happened a couple, well, week, couple of weeks, yeah, couple of weeks ago. What a great time to be a customer, an investment client, Right, fees have been reduced to nothing. When you think about that, it just it just hit me that when Charles Schwab came online, that was in '75, when they went to negotiated commissions. That hadn't changed fixed commissions for 183 years. I think 183 years when they shook hands and said, "Okay, we're in the good old boy school. Nobody changes commissions." 183 years later, Charles Schwab comes on, discount brokers. Now, from there till now. Now Schwab the other day says, no commission. Right. Zero. And who would ever think that Schwab is going to be given advice? They give advice now, Schwab. Right. They're in the advice business. Right. Full, and full they manage portfolios. They manage a 
and they do a great job. Yeah, but but you know we, we, when you talk about fixed commitment, you paid a lot of money back then, Tom, for to, to buy and sell a stock That's from right. a stockbroker. And you couldn't go to another firm and get a better deal. You couldn't get a better deal because it was fixed, and then you had negotiated, which opened up competition. And how it's the same thing. When I came into the business. We had quarter point spreads, 25 cents. Then it went to eight, eighths, 12 and a quarter cent. Then then to, you know, uh, uh, 12 and a half cents. And then to 16 cents. For a long time, you had a six and a quarter cents spread between the bid and the offer. You make a lot of money. And then what did you have? The algorithmic traders, the high frequency traders. You went from six and a quarter cents to pennies. And computers came in and they took over and they replaced people and they made the markets far more efficient. What a great time to be a customer in this business. Yeah. The customers. Yes. You were about to weigh in. Well, something, well, actually two points. So taking what you're saying, think of how expensive it would be to have a diversified portfolio under the old system. Oh, every stock you bought, you were paying a huge commission. Because you have to buy them individually. That's so right. between the fees and the ETFs, individual investors are light years ahead of where they were. That's right. 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And then one other thing that stood out about the book is that it was as if God's hand was on the timing of the ETF. Because had, been th- had things been a little bit differently and Vanguard had accepted the product from the get-go, I don't think you would have had the innovation that it would have been relegated to a Vanguard product. Right. And they may have very well ruled the roost from the get go. Secondly, patent law went through quite a bit of change because we went through a period where process was patent. And therefore, if the, if you've been able to patent your process, you would have been given the golden car. You would have loved to have done it. Right. Well, we've tried to patent products at the exchanges. We can never get there. Right. Um, we always tried to do that. That was the big, you made another great point earlier too, Ralph, and that is back then the competition among, among exchanges was fierce. So everybody was careful, mm-hmm. right? Everybody was careful not to let their idea out of the bag too. Because when we did filings, Back then, when we were creating new products, right. we would we would file file them privately before they became public, and we would go down and work with the SEC staff so that they can understand the financial, you know, the the, 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 the financial benefit of creating products like this for clients, and and help smooth the process of approval, then they would become public. And you knew once they became public, there was going to be somebody right behind you competing against you. So you're right. We could not patent products at exchanges. And we looked into it. All the other exchanges looked into it. That's why these licenses on indexes were important at the time because they gave you you know, if you had a, an exclusive license from Dow Jones, S&P, you know, McGraw-Hill, those people, then, you know, it's like it's like the OEX or the S&P 500 option. They had exclusive licenses. That's right. So you couldn't create the same product. And there's the beach property in the ETF world. Yeah. Right? Through the licenses. Well, guys, we're probably running out of time. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, it's good stuff. Uh, and, 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 and again, I, you know, I like to say to a lot of the folks 
that are now coming into the business, been in the business last five years, 10 years. Look, what an opportunity they have. Technology has changed the world. It's the great equalizer. We have developments with technology each and every day to make not only markets more efficient, but make the world we live in. I mean, how do we live in this world without Uber and and Waze and, you know, smartphones and Venmo? <laughs> All of that, that's the great that's the great thing about the free market system. It rewards innovation. We don't ever want to lose that as a country. We are the leaders of the world when it comes to innovate, right? And 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 to me, this industry has, I cannot, you know, for me, it's a, it's a second career, Tom, right? It's a second career. I have to thank you for it. You know, when I sold the National Stock Exchange back in 2011, at the end of 2011, to a competitor, I, you know, I was doing some things after that, but I was looking for, you know, I, I prayed on it, actually. What am I going to do? I knew I wasn't ready to quit. It's, it's you know, it's, it's part of the vitality that I have, you know, is to keep going. And here I found the second career and I work with a great group of people at New Square Capital who, well, a bunch of young people who teach me every day. I teach them. It's, we share. And I have to thank you for that because you led me in this direction. Whoever believed that I would be involved in portfolio management and managing wealth for clients. It's fascinating. It's a whole new world to me. But the opportunity for the younger generation of people over the next 10, 15, 20 years is just it, it's it, it's remarkable the opportunities that they're going to be presented right. with. Right. Anything to say on the end? I hope people will check out the book. Uh, I have a love for history, and one of the reasons why I love it is you can apply so much of it to what you're faced with. And like Joseph has said, there's been a history of innovation, and perhaps not knowing each particular one isn't as important, but developing that mindset. Everything in here was very entrepreneurial. And with that, there are people who tried and failed and failed just wildly, magnificently. And yet the markets were better for it. So uh, I hope people will check out The Elusive Trade. I enjoyed writing it. Much more enjoyed the, the people I've gotten to meet, such as the men here in the room and the people I interviewed over the phone. Um, been a wonderful experience. And thank you for this afternoon. I've enjoyed reading it. It's been, been a lot of fun. Yeah, and I want to just I want to thank Ralph for for you know putting a couple of years into the recording of this history yeah. and the you know hundreds of hours of time that you spent in doing this. Um, it's not easy to write a book, uh, particularly on a, a topic like this. So I, I congratulate you, and I wish you much success with uh, with the, with this book. And you should thank my wife as well. So yeah, she did put up a. Yes. My wife's the same thing. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Tom, too, for having us today. Appreciate it very much. It's been great having you.